Hello and welcome to Free Speech Nation, the podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. I'm delighted this week to be joined by Kate Hoey, who represented the constituency of Vauxhall for 30 years as a Labour MP, and then last year became Baroness Hoey of Lyle Hill and Rathlin in County Antrim, where she grew up in a unionist household. Uh, she was unusual for a Labour MP because she voted Brexit and has often voted against the party whip on numerous issues relating to the EU. Baroness Hoey. I've been thinking a lot about your career because you were a Brexit-supporting Labour MP, and that must have put you at odds with a lot of... Well, we know it did. It put you at odds with a lot of people in your party. I mean, I come from a leftist background as well, and I was openly supportive of Brexit. And in the comedy community, let me tell you, that's not a good idea. No. It's, it's a bit like shooting yourself in the foot. So uh, I feel a certain affinity uh, in that respect. So. Well, that's, that's very nice. You know. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that, actually, we became all of... Uh, we Brexiteers, particularly those who were seen as on the left, yeah. became you know, very close in many ways because we all suffered the same, um, not quite harassment, although we got harassment as well, you know, walking around Westminster from the uh, the Remainers who stood there with their flags. But yes. I think there was a feeling that we were, uh, you know, we were actually fighting more than just a Remain group of MPs or, or, or we were fighting a kind of the establishment, weren't we? Yes. Everybody who was everybody thought that anyone who voted, wanted to leave was somehow a bit nutty. And did you have any particular, particularly bad reactions within your party? I mean, uh, I know that Jeremy Corbyn has for 40 odd years been opposed to the EU and quite, quite vocally, or the EEC as it then was. Mm. Um, but he ultimately had to do a job of kind of masking that or kind of uh, treading a line, yeah. you know, sort of supporting the idea of remaining in the EU but reluctantly, yeah. which is kind of, it's a hard line to tread, isn't it? I actually felt very sympathetic towards Jeremy because, well, first of all, I think after he was elected by that huge majority, I mean, there were some of our MPs who just were out to get him mm. and proved very quickly that that's so. Whatever you thought of Jeremy, uh, you know, I don't think it was a very nice way to treat a new leader. Um, yes. and, and then on the EU issue, I mean, I'd been in the lobby with him over 30 years mm-hmm on anything that wasn't vaguely able to vote to show our you know, discontentment with the European Union. So it was difficult for him because he was clearly uh, someone who, if had not been leader of the party, would have been joining us, yes. supporting uh, the EU on, on all the issues to do with you know, low wages and all of the, the, the kind of left way of arguing for uh, getting out. Yes, well, I mean, he re- he rebelled against the whip as well. Uh, oh, all the uh, time on, on EU. I mean, he voted against Maastricht, yes. like I did. Um, voted against the Lisbon Treaty. Supported a cause for a referendum long before anyone else was pushing for it. We yeah. were, you know, there was a referendum group who wanted to have a referendum. Uh, so he, 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 and then he became leader just at the time when it was the big, big issue. And, I mean, that was the problem. I think if he had st- kept true to what he really felt... He probably still wouldn't be leader, yeah. <laughs> but at least he would have uh, felt, you know, I, I think he would probably within himself have felt better. I think also the perception of that caused problems insofar as people knew how he felt about the EU. He was so much on record. Yeah. And, and so therefore to attempt to sell it became just, it, it was a difficult sell and, and, and a lot of people started to mistrust it. Yes, it, 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 it's always difficult if you've been absolutely clear about something to suddenly say, uh, more or less that you've changed your mind other than for what seems just quite blatantly political yes. reasons in terms of the uh, of the Labour Party. But I mean, the Labour Party behaviour on the EU uh, from the beginning, I mean, I know I had no argument with people who wanted to support remaining, but it was the way they did it. And then once we had voted to leave, complete disregard for those Labour areas and those Labour people who had campaigned so hard yeah. to get out. So I definitely want to get onto this uh, because there there is this sense that uh, de- there was an attempt to thwart democracy from within Parliament itself. But if we can go back a bit further, because I think a lot of people are confused by how is it that the Labour Party, which in 1983 ran on a manifesto to get out of the common market, h- how did it shift? When did that happen? Was it Kinnock? Was it Blair? How did it become the, the, the party of Remain? I think... Probably the uh, it started a little bit with Kinnock, but mainly Blair. I mean, Tony Blair came in uh, as leader of going to get us elected as this, um, you know, we were going to be a new kind of Britain, a new kind of country, and we were going to work with the European Union. I remember I was a junior minister at the time, 
uh, in the Home Office with Jack Straw as the Home Secretary, and we had to go to the EU in those days. It was before um, it was you know before majority voting in the Home Affairs Justice area, and uh, you know the, the the line we had to take always was that there are good friends. We must work with them. We must make sure that we don't do anything that sort of sets us apart. So we had all these ridiculous machinations go on within the EU where Jack Straw would be against something very strongly that was being put up and he would be arguing for that. We would sit there at the, at the, in, in Brussels and, and be arguing for something that was really, really important that we weren't going to agree with. Yes. And of course, you would get other ministers from other countries sort of coming up in the tea breaks and saying, well, we actually you know, agree with you, but we, we're going to support this because we must all stick together. And then at the end, when it came to the crunch, a message would come through from via Dining Street, via you know, the Ukraine, um, mm -hmm. saying, Sorry, but you've got to give way on this because we want to get something else elsewhere, you know, in another area of, yes. of European. So, I, you know, it was the wheeling and dealing. Okay. If I hadn't been uh, sort of anti the whole EU anyway, because I was when I voted various times um, over the years, I would have, you know, I hated the way it, what Brussels worked and that whole... Um, you know, you scratch my back and I scratch yours. That sort of idea of yeah. what politics wasn't to me what... Well, this is something yeah. I hear again and again for people who've had direct experience at Brussels, as you have, I mean, from your time in the Home Office, but that they don't like either the atmosphere there, the way things work, the bureaucracy, that kind of thing. And, and uh, do, so that exacerbated it, didn't it, being there? Yeah, yeah, I did for me. And but then I think some people, in order to survive working in that, in that, kind of uh, atmosphere become almost zealots you know so you either go mm. and become a real real signed up member of the uh, you know the EU is wonderful squad or <laughs> you decide that this is just not for us and it just was so alien to the kind of way we did politics in our country yes um, so that and then, so I think Tony Blair was absolutely responsible and um, then unfortunately of course what happened earlier than that was the, the whole question of of um, uh, trade unions and the, the way that they shifted mm. because of the social chapter and the feeling that, you know, they, the, the way they could get more rights and all of these things that they were campaigning for mm. was through the, Euro, the, the EU giving it through the social chapter. And of course, that was a bit of a nonsense, really, because so many of the issues and so many of the things that we gained were gained by you know, trade unions in this country fighting for them and getting them. And also we were much better off yes. than some of the EU directives. We had already implemented issues, things there that were much better. Um, but once Tony Blair sort of set out on that, um, it became, I think then, it, it literally did become that it was, that, that was, you know, the, anyone who spoke out within the Labour Party, even in those red wall seats where yes. there were lots of natural EU um, you know, who didn't like the yeah. EU, it, it was brushed aside or it was, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not the so, line. So by the time the referendum was coming about, that transition from a, a, a Eurosceptical Labour Party to a, a, a Europhile Labour Party, it, had be, it was complete? It was complete. It was absolutely complete. And I mean, Jeremy took the leadership knowing that it was, it was a, a, a Europhile party, really. Yes. Um, but we did, on, those of us who were involved with Labour Leave, a small number of us, did feel that, you know, Jeremy and he had Seamus Milne working for him, mm. who was also strongly anti-EU. And John McDonnell at one time had been strongly anti-EU as well. Yes. But I think he was more willing than Jeremy to shift quickly uh, because of what, you know, he was sort of kind of, I suppose, the Trotskyite approach of the long, the long game. Yes. He, he saw it as being, um, you know, better to get Labour into power. And I think he saw that, he thought that, you know, not going along with, I think he thought that there'd be no chance of the referendum. I think most people thought that, yeah, that, I know. that it was going to happen. Well, I got it right. I was, oh, appeared, did you? I appeared on the BBC Daily Politics on the Monday and I was on with the New Statesman political correspondent and the Spectator political correspondent. And I'm very proud of this because we, at the end of this discussion, on this was the Monday, we were asked, um, she asked, um, now, come on, I, w I want you all to say, what's going to happen on Thursday? Hmm. And so, of course, the New Statesman guy said, oh, well, you know, um, uh, Remain is going to win, definitely. Yes. There's no doubt about it. The polls are all showing that, blah, blah, blah. The Spectator uh, political editor said, well, I wish it wasn't so, but I think 
I think he's right, you know, Remain is going to win. Yeah. And I just came in and said, actually, you're wrong. Leave is going to win. And the reason you two think Remain is going to win is because you don't get out of London enough. You see, and that was just, I just felt so great afterwards when we did win. That because, I mean, it, and it's not prophecy or anything. No, no. There, is, there was valid reason for thinking that because yeah, you've gone Yeah, because I was, I was out all around those, those seats that have now gone. But why weren't those people telling the pollsters? Well, I think, I think a lot of the pollsters probably didn't spend a lot of time up in those seats either, mm. really. But also, you know, there were, I met so many people who literally would come and whisper to you. You know, I don't <laughs> it was mean like at the a dirty rallies, secret, wasn't but it? yeah, they did not want to admit openly. And it was very interesting in the House of Commons because you'd walk around and some of the attendants or the security guys or the people who worked in the kitchen. And I had quite a lot of constituents who sort of worked in, in the palace because it was so near. Mm. And they would, they would um, you know, whisper, literally yeah. whisper and say, thank you for what you're doing. You know, that kind of attitude. Um, it was actually quite, um, it was quite sad, you know, that people really felt almost afraid to speak mm. out. Do you think that's partly because during the campaign and during the debates, from my percep perception, there was a sense in the media that, that one side was being demonised already, was being smeared as, you know, mm. if you vote this way, you must be stupid, racist, etc. And, and as a result, people took that on board and just felt, well, if that's what people are going to think of me, I'll wait until the anonymity of the ballot box. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that... Well, I think, I think you know, from the beginning, we were, we were either, you know, told we were, we were stupid or we were, you know, racist or all of those things. Um, and, of course, you know, people in public life, I mean, we could take that and you were used mm. to be people. But I think if you're, if you're someone in a, you know, working in somewhere where the vast majority of the people seem to be taking one view and also where you saw... You know, you turned on the media, the BBC, and the whole media establishment mm. were in favour of, of of remaining. And and it's it you have to be quite quite brave or quite savvy to really speak out about that. Yeah. And you know, I I think that given the interest that we could have had from the referendum, because people did take an interest who didn't normally get involved in politics. And people, I, well, one thing I remember very much people saying um, was. You know, we know this vote matters. I mean, normally in my constituency, they would say, or in another constituency, we know that, you know, we could vote Conservative, but Labour will always get in, or we could vote mm. Labour, but this time we know that our vote actually is going to make a difference. Because yes. it, and we used to say that at rallies to people, you know, your vote actually genuinely matters this time. So I think that that's how also we did very well because we got people to vote who had not voted before and i mean that wasn't just coming from you the government themselves issued those pamphlets they spent 10 million pounds on those pamphlets <laughs> to every house saying the government will do what you yeah. decide yeah. we will implement what yeah. you decide which i think exacerbated the sense of betrayal when it looked like they weren't yes they had made it clear and we spent ages in parliament working on the referendum question working on uh, the fact that it was going to be not an advisory referendum mm -hmm. but it was going to actually uh, mean something and i think that's what david cameron obviously thought he was going to win yes uh, which is why he wanted it to be a definite referendum not one that was going to be able to be uh, said oh well this is only advisory now we have to you know well, the, do it the, again the revisionism that was involved in this really struck me is that um, afterwards that, that phrase, this was an advisory referendum, was uttered by absolutely everyone. Um, and yet it was never said beforehand. And, and are you suggest saying that it was discussed whether this was Oh, yes, advisory? there was discussions about it. You know, and there were probably some people who did want to push. You know, there, there were, I mean, let's be honest, there were people in Parliament who didn't want a referendum, whether it mm -hmm. was on that issue or anyone, you know, who do not believe in referenda yeah. and feel that everything should be done in Parliament. And, you know, there is a, a case to be made for yes. that, that parliamentary democracy, you don't need referenda. Um, so I think that that was part of the, lots of the discussion was, you know, why, why should we have this? Why is yes. this different from other issues? Um, and I think... Um, the, the the government then discovered, of course, that when they had lost, they were pretty well stuck with it. Mm. The opposition decided that they might they might have lost, but they were going to fight it, yes. which they did. I think a number of things struck me about this entire uh, debacle. But I think uh, one of them is the way in which there was this kind of attempt, not well. Yes, to revise history to an extent, but, but to actually do it in such a way that attacked the voters in particular to suggest that they did not know what they were voting mm. for. And yet, as you said yourself, 
people were energized. People were involved with politics who weren't, weren't normally. So uh, there were debates. People mm -hmm. were talking about it everywhere, in the mm -hmm. pub, in the cafe, absolutely everywhere. Um, to say that people didn't know what they were voting for after months and months of debate is, I mean, I, I just thought it was incredibly insulting, whichever way you voted. Yes, I, and I think, I think it, uh, you know, the people who did that have a lot to um, kind of, really, they are the people to blame now for the fact that there is so much cynicism mm. about our politics and our politicians. Uh, and, you know, when we uh, saw what went on in Parliament and those long, long debates with, you know, Speaker Burkow trying his best to do everything that was going to stop it. Do, uh, do you consider him an, an activist speaker? Oh, he was shocking. I mean, I, I made it my views, views very clear publicly. I mm. mean, I thought he was the most appalling speaker. I was a great fan of Betty Boothroy, even though she actually was a Remainer in the end, but Betty was a wonderful speaker, you know, mm. completely impartial. John Berker made, right from the beginning, he, it was clear he wanted to stop Brexit and yes. he did what he could and he was backed up by people like Hilary Benn and, and, and um, our, Keir Starmer, yes. our now future leader. Yes. Not my future leader because I'm no longer in the Labour Party. Yes. But, um, I mean, isn't that astonishing though, someone like Hilary Benn and you, you think about the difference with, with his father and, I mean, that, I mean, actually, I, I wanted to, to to quote uh, Tony Benn uh, uh, on his five questions, which he, he oh, said that he would always put mm. to anyone with uh, economic, social or political power. And these are the questions. What power have you got? Where did you get it from? In whose interest do you use it? To whom are you accountable? And how do we get rid of you? Yeah. Now, that to me sums up the problem that we have with U the European Commission in particular, yes. that, that we have no recourse yes. to get rid of those people who have incredible power. Yes. Why are those questions from this, this, this venerated character within the history of, of, of Labour, why, why are these no longer considered important to so many members of the uh, Parliamentary Labour Party? I wish I had an answer to that. I mean, I think a lot of our candidates now were brought in as candidates, you know, fully signed up to New Labour's kind of uh, attitude to the EU and mm. they would they would say that well we if we stay in we can change things we can help to mold it you know we're a great yes. we're a great um, modernizer in terms of how it could work um, but you know people like Tony Benn I mean even even during the referendum he was denigrated by um, Labour strong you know cabinet shadow cabinet ministers and that that was I think quite amazing and then you think back to people like Peter Shore. Yes. You know, who made some brilliant, brilliant speeches at the time when we were voting way back, even before your time, probably, you know, for, in 1975. Mm -hmm. And he made some great speeches about just, you know, fear, fear, fear. He said it in his wonderful speech in the, in the, in the I think it was at the Oxford Union, you know, what is it that this government are trying to get people? Why, in terms of voting, it's mm. fear. They will, and ex Exactly, sort of forty-one years later, that was what what they tried to do with with the Remain campaign: fear, yes, yes. fear of all these things. And you know, when you look back now, as I did this week, on some of the things that were said, um, just what would happen to the country? Not after we actually, you know, had negotiated a way out. Yeah. But the day after the vote, almost they were implying that you know the economy would crash. The, country would fall to pieces. Yeah, it was, it was, very it was unbelievable it? when you think back on it. And um, I was I was actually did a, um, the BBC David Dimbleby programme that morning, a year, five years ago, I was on just as David, in fact, I think I got interrupted in the middle of it, David Cameron came out to resign. Mm. And um, I remember the shock, you know, people like, I mean, that studio, going into that studio at, I think I was there about seven o'clock in the morning, maybe slightly earlier, and they were shocked. I mean, they were just mm. shocked. And of course, those of us who had been invited, who were um, mem you know, supporters of the Leave campaign, we were just so <laughs> sort of gobsmacked because yeah. we had, you know, it, it, was a, it was a very surreal atmosphere. And even David Dimbleby just looked completely shocked. Well, I think people within those circles, they couldn't they'd comprehend. They'd never talked to anybody else. No, they'd never. No, I mean, this is something when, when people say that people didn't know they were, what they were voting for when they voted to leave. But when I spoke to those people within those remain circles, it's quite clear they didn't know anything about the EU. They didn't know how it operated. No. They, they, this, was, this wasn't something they had cared about before no. 2016. And suddenly they were painting their faces with the EU flag and this kind of thing. And it, it became an almost a, a really zealous 
uh, yeah. co commitment to something that they pr probably weren't that well informed on. And they, well, also that it showed that they couldn't actually find much to be positive. Mm. So they couldn't go around talking about how wonderful the EU is and what it's going to do there for us. There wasn't much of that. Was there wasn't it? much of that. <laughs> it, it had to be negative. And of course, they didn't want to talk about what the EU might look like in five or ten years if we did stay in. And, mm. and that was another another really strong reason. You know, people go on about trade and all that, but trade wasn't really why people voted um, to leave. I mean, most people voted because they really did see the fact that the country was changing, that we'd been, we had lost a lot of control over our own laws mm. from the European Union and that it was only going to get worse because there was a real attempt, and we've seen that now since we left, to move towards a closer, closer federal Europe. And that's yeah. just not, you know, an island nation, we're not, that's not the way we are. What do you think it says about the left, though, that, that it became synonymous with Remain, when, of course, after all, the EU is a, uh, a, a pro-corporate economic block, neoliberal mm. at its heart, built into its constitution, I would say, mm. capitalism. It's, it's, it doesn't feel like a socialist project. No, and, and, and that's why, I mean, the Labour Party, I don't think, could, be, could have any way been portrayed as a left-wing party, really, and maybe well, they didn't want to be. To be no, did well, he? he didn't, and but I mean, I think Jeremy would have liked it to have come back to being a left-wing party, but you, could, you couldn't pronounce being a left-wing party and be supporting... Um, the EU in the in, in, in the sort of sycophantic way that that many of the people within the shadow cabinet did that yeah. it could do no wrong. That was uh, my problem with that. I couldn't reconcile or, being on the left and supporting the EU. It, it seemed incoherent to me. No, and that, I mean, because there was a, I think it was was it the Workers' Party was again. I mean, were, I remember the you know, various fringe meetings. Yes. We'd have these sort of odd combinations of people being opposed to the EU, um, and and you know, I think. It would, was it the Communist Party of Great Britain, Marxist-Leninist, produced the most wonderful <laughs> leaflets, which actually were just really, really incisive about what was wrong with the EU. And you could have read it and thought, well, hang on, that's actually what the Labour Party should be saying. Yes. But those ideas weren't articulated very much. Not no. from, from the left. No, no. I mean, we didn't. I mean, you have to look on it that we weren't really very coherent. Uh, mm. I mean, the Leave campaign wasn't desperately coherent in many ways either. We, you know, we worked in, in we had the, you know, we had um, the Vote Leave campaign, we had the Leave EU campaign, and we had grassroots out for a while. And we had, you know, Labour Leave was kind of working between our little group was working with all these yeah. different groups. And it was all very ad hoc, um, whereas the Remain campaign did seem much more controlled. I think even the former chairman, mm. Marks and Spencers, has said that, you know, as chairman of, 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 of the uh, Remain campaign, he didn't have actually any real say. Um, we were much more, I suppose, um, bottom-up yes. um, in, in, in our campaigns. And um, the left was very fragmented over it, so we didn't really have a... There wasn't a, a left-wing... You know, the trade unions, I think that was the big, big disappointment, mm -hmm. apart from the RMT, who unfortunately we had lost the most vocal right. supporter of, 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 of leave with, with um, the general secretary of the RMT dying just um, yeah. a couple of years before that. And so the RMT, although they were opposed to the EU, didn't really have the, um, didn't come out and, and, and do the rallies. And there was always these arguments about would they appear on, people appear on platforms with different people. And, mm. you know, Nigel became the kind, Nigel Farage became the kind of um, linchpin of, of, um, the Leave campaign on in one side, and then there were other people who just would, for I think rather really silly reasons, decided they you know they wouldn't appear on the same platform as Nigel. Yes. So once the vote was counted, once it was in, and once the result was clear, then we have this three-year period where Parliament is ostensibly trying to overturn the result. And I know many people would deny that. But I think that is certainly clear for, for, for most people. Um, I think what was quite disturbing was some of the language. So we're going to have a people's vote, this implication that the people didn't vote last time or mm. stop the coup. It was, it was almost the, it, they were using the language of, uh, of anti-democracy. Yeah. Uh, as, as if we'd had a sort of anti-democratic coup. Yes, when it, when it was a yeah. It was the, the biggest mandate that we'd ever seen. But I mean, the, the, you've kind of, I think we can't um, dismiss the crucial importance of Theresa May, not in right. a positive way, but in a negative way. I mean, she came in as the new leader and was clearly, having been a Remainer, 
was not committed to us getting out in the way that we were committed to getting out. Mm. And um, she's, I mean, she is responsible for many of the issues that we now face, particularly the protocol, because of her whole determination to really keep us in the customs union and the single market. And, and do you feel that it was just, she just had, she was treating it as damage limitation rather than an opportunity? I think she was definitely treating it as, look, we've got to get out because we've, you know, the vote has gone that way. But my job is to make sure that we end up with as close a relationship as possible. And so we got that ridiculous situation where instead of, you know, discussing trade to start mm. with, we had all these other negotiations on, on um, how much money we were going to pay and on yes. EU citizens and, and so on. So it became, um, she, I think she, she has a huge amount to blame for giving a kind of credibility to those on the opposition side and, and the Lib Dems, yes. who, who, who at her own side, of course, who wanted to um, make life difficult. Mm. And do you feel vindicated uh, since Brexit insofar as uh, it, it does seem to me that a lot of people have turned against the EU now, people who would have voted in favour of it before, particularly over the uh, vaccine rollout mm. and uh, their, their willingness to uh, to throw Northern Ireland under the bus. You know, th these kind of things are seen as, you know, maybe we made the right decision after all. Well, I hope so. I mean, I know there's been some polls come out that, you know, say we're as divided as ever, but certainly there is not the anger there that there was among some elements of the Remain campaign. Mm. And I think most people have accepted that that was, that was the result. And I also think that maybe, too, they have become more aware of some of the way that the EU has behaved, not just on the vaccinations, although that was a pretty shocking yes. way. And also that, you know, it, not just in what they did about invoking Article 16 of the protocol, but the fact that they were so far behind because they couldn't actually agree, whereas we had the independence and the ability to go out and yes. do, you know, take order vaccinations. Um, I, I mean, it's still we're still fighting a battle literally every day. You know, where someone said to me today, we had questions um, to Lord Frost, and someone said afterwards to me that you know there's still people in in all the parties, and certainly in the House of Lords, who just want to kind of punish the government because of we've left the Union, yes. European Union. And they'll find other ways. I mean, half the people who are going on about Northern Ireland haven't got an interest in the slightest bit in Northern Ireland, but it's a very useful one for them to get up and have a go at the government for, you know, the, the protocol. And yes. they, they love to attack our government first before they think of attacking the EU. In fact, they stick up for the EU. I mean, over and over again, you'll find lords going on about, and the EU has done its best, and why is why is Her Majesty's government not yes, being people, more... People have never been holding the EU to account. But no. Even in the entertainment industry, you don't hear comedians uh, mocking the, no. the key figures of the EU when they can be quite ridiculous. I, I, I've never... I, I don't know why, what's happened in... I mean, I'm not, I suppose, a great follower of comedians, but I've never, <laughs> un I've never understood why so many of them are so... Um, <laughs> So kind of uh, anti, uh, you know, the anti-establishment, which is fine, but then that doesn't lead through to being in any way anti the EU. Yeah, or, no, it, it's, or, it's a major, these are establishment figures. Mm. A lot of the key figures are centre-right, from centre-right parties in Europe. So you would expect these to be targets, you know, but apparently not. No, it's it's always. Well, I I mean, I'm afraid I'm a blame the BBC for an awful lot. <laughs> I do actually. I think the BBC has been shocking throughout the Brexit campaign, and I know the new, whatever his name is, General Secretary or Secretary uh, uh, General uh, or Tim Chief Tim Davy has said things are going to change. But you know, you can just see it in the in the in in, in the every journalist has their own kind of agenda about the EU. Well, it made me think after the vote, one of the earliest. Um, uh, interviews with the public that that went viral was a man with a swastika tattoo, and you think that's the person that you chose, is yeah, it? Yeah. I mean, that isn't someone who is representative no. of Leave no, voters. No. I mean, it, and maybe that wasn't deliberate, but it seemed. That, I mean, I, if I were that journalist, I think, you know, that's some fringe nutter. Let's leave him alone, right? But but they went for him and put that on the beat. I mean, that struck me as an odd. Yes, and that, that, that you always get that feeling that they're they're out to to damage as far as possible. It's. I think maybe it's because you know there is within the BBC just a um, kind of a group think, which on a lot of other issues as mm. well, and it just seems to be that 
it's you know you have to be quite brave i suppose to speak out against it or yeah. else you leave and come to gb news <laughs> <laughs> good good advice um so what do you why what was it about this particular issue that created this kind of hysteria and division and i do say hysteria meaningfully because after the vote i mean, I, mean, I lost friends um, oh. families were torn apart oh, yeah. it was almost like the irish civil war where people were, where brothers were fighting against brothers you know it, it's that sort of Odd. I, and I think a lot of people now and a lot of Remain voters now, in fact, I spoke to a friend of mine recently who said, I think we did all go mad for a bit. Mm. You know, I think I think people did lose their minds. What, what is it about this issue that, that caused that? I, I really don't know. It's a very, very good question. But you're absolutely right. People were so angry uh, and personal unlike any other sort of political mm. issue where you discuss and you can sort of, you know, people would not, I know, I know friends of mine who, who were told by other friends of theirs, they thought that they really would not be inviting them anymore yes. to, you know, to have dinner. Uh, and, and, and it's, you know, if, if that's um, what happened, um, you can see that it's going to take a while for that to, you know, for us to come through that. But, I, I just don't know the answer. I mean, do you've, have well, you got an answer? Have you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder if it's just a product of our time. We live in a, a, the digital age now. It's, it's a time when social media is polarizing people all the more. And, and mm -hmm. you can exist within this bubble. In, 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 and you can have this sense in which everyone agrees with you because, of course, everyone Because it's is, only the, your own Twitter followers who yes. are you're agreeing with you, yeah. I mean, a lot, of, you know, a lot of people said after the last general election that if you just went on Twitter, it would look like Labour were going to win with a landslide, mm -hmm. you know, and this is not representative of the... No, and you see the, the danger of, of and I, I raised this the other week, because I'm really annoyed now that more and more public institutions are demanding that everybody has to be online and they have to do everything mm. online. And this is not, you know, there's a whole generation who don't want to go online. And then there's a lot of people who don't want to, they still want to be able to speak to somebody and talk to somebody. It's like the idea now that it annoys me, all these machines and, you know, where you go for your buying something, you have to go and use the machine rather than a person. Now, I, I, I would be dismissed as some kind of, you know, old fashioned person, but we're losing, we're losing the personal hmm. touch. And we're also, I can't believe that it's not losing jobs as well yeah. in some way. Do you stay offline most, for the most part? Um, I'm, not, I'm not on Facebook, I do hmm. tweet. I mean, I was very late coming to it and, and it took me a while to sort of get into it. And I got very upset at the beginning when you would get sort of, you know, you'd read people being nasty. Yes. Now I just go, block, Yeah, that's block, all you can do. Block, yeah. block. I love it, love it. And I love <laughs> you when actually I... enjoy the block. Yes, I do. Because when, um, when I've said something and then I look down my timeline, it just gives me, you know, it's really good because I, and particularly on anything to do with Northern Ireland, Ireland, you get all the sort of you know, Sinn Féin trolls who come on and, and I just go, block, block, yeah. block. That's another one gone. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, but, but it doesn't, um, you know, I'm always amazed that I've got so many followers and think, well, you know, that's quite nice. So uh, on a broad question, uh, because of your experience, um, I'm interested in the way in which politicians, how free politicians can be with what they say. I mean, you, you, you've always said whatever you think, mm. but a lot of politicians don't. And when, and when you're in an interview with a politician, they will dance around the question. Mm. You probably saw um, Richard Madeley literally ending an interview with Gavin Williamson because he just would not answer the question. I just don't understand it. I don't understand. I mean, obviously, when you're a shadow cabinet, a cabinet minister and there is a government line, you know, you have to try and hold that. Yes. But I don't know why people can't be more honest and say, well, actually, I'm not going to answer that because... You know, that's the government line is we're not answering it. You know, at least be honest right. why you're not doing well, it. Because we can see it. I mean, I often feel sorry for a politician who's squirming and not answering the question. Because yeah. I can tell they're thinking, well, I don't agree with, with what I've been told to say. Yeah. But I can't say what I really yeah, feel. Yeah, but there is, you know, there is a lot of um, careerists in politics. Right. Um, and I think there, there comes a time when, um, you know, you do have to decide what are, are you interested in because you've become a member of parliament and you've got into politics, are you doing it? Why are you doing it? Mm. If you're only doing it to become, uh, you know, in getting into government in, and being, um, you know, getting your, your car and your red box and all of that, that's not really the motive that is going yeah. to mean that you're going to be honest as time goes on. Um, but, but sometimes it would just, you know, I, I you see, I, I was... Um, I voted against the Maastricht Treaty, as I said, mm. back in, under John Smith, because he was quite um, 
we had opposed everything going through. And then when it came to the final third reading, the line went out to abstain. And I just thought, you I know, mean, we'd spent literally months on the Maastricht Treaty. And I just thought, how ridiculous, you know, all this time and we put all these amendments down and we've opposed something. And now we're going to abstain. So I voted against it. And there were about 30 of us, I think. And I got called, phoned up that night by um, John Smith when I got home. Oh, I, I was in Mo Molum's team. Uh, I, I was yeah. in a, a team uh, to do with something called years ago, Citizens Charter, if you can ever remember that. You're I probably don't. too young. No, <laughs> it was a, Labour's great idea. It was a Citizens Charter. But anyway, um, and John Smith just r rang me up as soon as I'd got home and said, Hello, John. And I was genuinely watching an Arsenal football match, and I because <laughs> I'm an, I'd worked with Arsenal, and I'm in, you know, in their education. And um, he said, "Oh, I, I, uh, you, um, you voted against when the line was to abstain, something like that." And I said, "Yes." And he said, "Right, um, I want you to resign." So I said, "Oh," and literally just at that moment, Arsenal scored, and I sort of went. <laughs> anyway, I said, "You had to repress a chair." Yeah, that's right. And I said. Um, <laughs> Well, if you want me to resign, I think, you know, why don't you sack me? And I said that just like that. And he said, right, you're sacked. Wow. <laughs> and that was it. I mean, it was a junior yes. shadow job. But, but, you know, and I think from then on, I just felt... Now, then I did become a, a government minister under Blair in terms of the Home Office and sports minister. But then mm. sports minister was very much my area. And I, I you know, in those days... Um, we were much more ciphered, and I don't, I didn't sort of feel that I had to get involved too much with any of the other issues. And yes, but um, I think you have to do what you feel right about. There's no point doing something if you don't feel happy. And wouldn't it be better for the electorate if, if everyone just said what they thought? Then you would know what you were voting for. And you know, yeah, and yes, and sometimes you wonder: is you know, is there another way other than party party mm. machines? But then, the, well. I mean, I have thought about it, but I suppose if you're trying to form a government, you know, how do you ensure you get things through um, legislation? I mean, our legislative system is so bureaucratic yes. to the length of time to something very, very simple can take a long, long time just because everyone has the opportunity to oppose it and yes. make amendments. It, it would be nice to be, sometimes I think it would be really nice to be, be a dictator for a few days. Wouldn't it? I mean, I think we all would like that, wouldn't you? You live a life of luxury. You'd have all the best food and it'd be fantastic. No, you could just do things like, you know, <laughs> things that annoy you. Just say, fix that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, very, it's a very vocational thing to do, to go into politics. And, I, uh, you know, that's why it surprises me when you talk about careerists and they're, they're thinking in terms of opportunity and power and the rest of it. Because I, 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 I imagine it'd be a horrible existence if you didn't have a genuine passion for the politics that you were espousing. Yes, um... I suppose there are, there are lots of things that some MPs would see would be, you know, they quite enjoy. They, mm. You know, the House of Commons is a very nice place, working environment, really, normally. You know, nice, especially if you're, you're into drinking, which I'm not. The bars, oh, they have a nice bar, they? they? have very nice bars and mm. nice restaurants and all of that. But no, that's not how people... I think genuinely, probably, most people from all political parties go in because they think, um, you know, that they are going to make a difference. And they're, but it, it's... it's um, it's also what worries me, and I've said this so many times, you know, now we are getting, and I've nothing against young people <laughs> at all, <laughs> but we're getting people now going straight from usually university mm. to work for an MP and then to become a sort of special advisor and then they want to become an MP. And you're, you're getting MPs who've never really, really, um, what I would call worked properly. Yeah, yeah. When I came in first in 1989, used to sit in the tea room with all these Labour MPs who were, had been down the mines, yeah. you know, who were working in factories, who, you know, were, were in their 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s even. And it was, you know, they, they had an, an understanding of life. Mm. And I think an awful lot of our newer, younger people coming in have only seen, um, you know, life from a relatively privileged... Way. Yes, I mean, there's a preponderance of Oxbridge... Uh, people, for instance, and privately educated people, and you, you don't get much evidence of that kind of uh, working well, life. Well, the interesting, the, the, the most number of new working class MPs, as I understand it, are some of those conservative MPs who've come in, in and won the red wall seats, you mm. know, Labour seats in the North and the Midlands, because oh, they right. weren't expected to win. Yes. So they were kind of 
well, we just let them, you know. So that's changed the dynamic. Yeah. Well, I think it's changed. I, I, I said this at the very beginning when they got elected, that, you know, this was going to make the Conservative Party realise, because they were going to have people there who, most of them were born and bred in the area mm. and become, uh, you know, and would be seen in in lots of terms, you know, as, as working class yes. um, MPs. They just happen to be Conservative. Now, they are, you know, probably going to be, I hope, a check on what the government does to do with, you know, yes. levelling up areas and sticking to promises. Um, whereas normally, in a in a kind of safe seat, it's, you know, there'd be a, maybe a hundred people after that seat from the Conservatives and it a lot of them, could, it could go to who they know, who, you know, who's yes. most around, who's got most friends in high places. So do you think the Conservative Party is now the party of the working class? Um, no, uh, I don't think there's really any party that would be completely, you know, the party of the working class. But I do think that they have, um, you know, I don't think anyone should underestimate um, the Prime Minister's kind of determination probably to keep those seats mm. um, and to show that, um, you know, he has meant what he said about inequality and, and, and getting more resources into areas that have been neglected. Um, now, whether that leads to people in their so-called safe seats feeling yes. neglected, um, I know that by-election recently people were saying that, but I, I don't think so. I think that by-election had specific reasons, um, mm -hmm. maybe, that caused such a big defeat. So. I'm going to draw on your gifts of prophecy because, you, you, well, you, you predicted the result of the EU referendum, so you could probably do this. What's going to happen to Labour? Can Labour uh, bring those voters back, the industrial heartlands? Can it, can it rebuild the Red Wall? No. I don't think Labour is, uh, certainly at the moment, I see no hope whatsoever for Keir Starmer to become the Prime Minister. Um, do you think it was the wrong choice? Well, I'm not even sure that, I mean, my, my personal, although I'm no longer living, but my personal view at the moment that there are only two people who sort of are around and neither of them are in Parliament at the moment. One is Caroline Flint, who I think would have made a, an excellent leader, and the other is actually Andy Burnham, who I've known for a long time and think is very good. But um, it's not really now about, you know, when Keir is the leader, but even if the leader was changed tomorrow. Yes. Uh, you know, when you've got people like Gordon Brown coming out, talking about... Um, hoping that we might, you know, rejoin the European Union. Yes. You just wonder, where have these people gone? been? And also, Labour has become seen anyway, and I think in reality is a party that is not interested in the issues that the average person out in the public is interested in. They're in, you know, they have become a, and it's so cliched to say it, but they are very much now, uh, um, you know, a party of, of metropolitan sort of very liberal ideas on things um, and forgotten and no patriotism. I mean, no yeah, patriotism yeah. whatsoever or patriotism. Yeah, I don't know which, which one I you mean, say. either is acceptable. Either. Well, what, but how, how either did, or either. Exactly. <laughs> my field. How did, how did that happen under Corbyn then? How did the party become even more middle class under a socialist leader? Well, because he was, I mean, we weren't, we weren't carrying out socialist policies. We were, I mean, right. we, it, it was... A lot of it was a sort of almost a pretense, you know, it, it sounded, they made the right words, but they also thought that some of these minority issues were things that were going to get them, you know, we became a party of, of almost trying to get a coalition of minorities, you know, and if we can get enough people, you know, using the whole race thing of, you know, if we can get enough immigrants to vote for us, uh, you know, if we can get an, enough people who, um, from the LGBT community, you know, it was a kind of issue, issue. Well, they were doing what, what Hillary Clinton did, which was target particular demographics and say, we will help you. And yeah. of course, not, not, not projecting an idea of unity, country as a whole, you know. No, but break, and it divides people. But I mean, Labour set up, you know, Somali groups and Ethiopian groups and Labour, uh, you know, uh, friends of India, friends of this. Uh, that doesn't actually bring a cohesive mm. party together because they've all then got their special interests and they've got their representatives on things representing them. Mm. And, and, and I think that's, um, you know, a big part. So I, I don't see... Um, I don't see the red wall seats falling back, certainly in, in, in the next couple of elections. And from what you're saying, uh, the, the, the proposal for a second referendum 
was really, there's no going back after that point. That seems to have been the thing that's done it. Uh, it was certainly did it for me. That was when I knew then that, you know, any, that we had so reneged on our promises um, uh, to, um, that we committed to actually carrying out the referendum. So uh, that's yeah. when I decided that I'd had enough. Um, we're just, we don't have much time left. I want to ask you a bit about Northern Ireland, if mm -hmm. that's all right, uh, with Edwin Poots now ousted after 21 days. Mm -hmm. So he's like the Lady Jane Grey of, of the, the DUP. <laughs> um, what, what, what's going on in that party? What's going to happen? Well, I mean, he it is seen as the, the largest unionist party, but of course an awful lot of pro-union people don't vote necessarily, mm -hmm. don't vote or don't vote necessarily for the DUP. Um, so I think the idea that somehow because the DUP might be going through a bad time that that's a real worry about the union, I don't, I don't accept that. The latest Lifetimes poll is very clear that there has hardly been any movement amongst people who would vote for a United Ireland um, than, than, than two years ago. Um, but the, you know, the protocol has been a, a hugely damaging on the whole fabric of our stability in Northern Ireland. And then that, that tied in with some people in the DUP feeling that Arlene Foster had to go, mm. partly because of what happened a couple of years ago or three years ago on the um, big scandal of... RHI, the heating yes. instance, which, yes. you know, which was too a complicated mess. to go in. It was a mess. And it there was were basically some people, incentivizing people yeah, to, to waste that's fuel right. that's right. <laughs> and make your, money while they were doing it. Leave your shed open and, you know, yeah. do they? And I think there were some people who felt she should have gone then. Um, and then, um, you know, it was handled very badly. Mm. Uh, Edwin Putz won it, I think, surprisingly, because Jeffrey Donaldson had obviously been um, around for much longer and was well known. So, um, the, the crucial issue now is that um, unless we get rid of the protocol, uh, in my view, uh, the instability will get worse. You know, societal damage is there. Yes. People are feeling angry. It's not just about trade issues at all. I mean, that's important. I mean, when you, you know, people I know who couldn't get their seeds for their organic farms delivered, all kinds of things going on. You know, you yes. get in touch with Amazon to get something and discover that they don't deliver anymore to Northern Ireland because it's too much hassle. But underneath it all is that the Belfast Agreement was meant to be a, a balanced agreement mm. that protected the interests of those who wanted to be Irish and protected the interests of those who wanted to be British. So in order to stop a border at the frontier uh, to protect the internal market of the EU, the British government agreed with the push from the Irish government and the EU that it should be in the Irish Sea. Mm. So the north-south dimension was protected, pushed by the Irish government, and the east-west was kind of abandoned by yes. our government. So people feel, I did a big rally last Friday night in, in the place in, in County Down, and um, it was very mixed, you know, all backgrounds, middle-class families out at it as well. And yes, they were angry, but the thing that struck me most was just how genuinely upset they were that they right. could have been, you know, there was a, a feeling we have been abandoned, betrayed. Yes. What have we done ever to deserve this? We didn't threaten violence. Varadka was the one who threatened violence by taking the custody. Well, he personally didn't threaten violence. Let me say that before yes. I have yes. the, <laughs> the trolls on. But he took the picture of the customs post blown up years ago and said, oh, look, if you do this. And of course, Theresa May didn't, hadn't helped by saying we can't even have a camera at the border for any kind of trade um, checking. Yes. And yet there are cameras there already because, you know, the Republic of Ireland's got a different speed limit. There's a you know, different corporation tax, different currency different mm. um you know they use kilometers we use miles and it, there is a border it is yes. a frontier it is an independent country so if the if the if the european union want to protect their internal market which i agree they want to there's so little likelihood of things being going over illegally then they should do it in their own in their own territory yes i mean i can't i can't help but notice the glee sometimes with which people are blaming brexit for any kind oh, they of love it. They love it. They do, see. don't they? Yeah. And of course, in Northern Ireland, you know, the, the majority of people, not by as big as I thought it might be, um, mm. voted to remain. But, you know, Wales voted to leave, Scotland voted yeah. to leave. So that, it, it was a United Kingdom referendum. And it didn't say on the ballot paper, do you want part of the 
you know, do you wish to leave the European Union or do you want to leave a little bit right. left under EU rules and EU courts? So yes. it isn't sustainable. It's going to have to go. And I think the, um, our government, you know, is behind the scenes doing a lot to try and influence the EU to be um, more practical about it. But politically, the EU want to see it as a way of getting us all to come back into the the customs, you know, under their rules. So I don't think that will happen. So I think the government is going to have to, uh, at some stage, be quite tough. Otherwise, um, and this isn't a threat, it's a reality. Things are, you know, are not going to be very nice in Northern Ireland. There will be some real problems because people are genuinely feeling uh, betrayed and uh, feel that the Irish government uh, has more influence uh, and the British government have gone along with it. And do you, do you sense that the anger amongst the unionist community is, is say, comparable to the anger against Margaret Thatcher during the 80s, during the uh, Anglo-Irish agreement? Because well, I think, I think the difference these days is that people are much more um, aware of things because of, you know, the social media and so on. Mm. And I think, I think they feel, well, of course, the Anglo-Irish agreement now has gone because of the... Um, the Belfast Agreement. Yeah, so yeah. a lot of the, the anger at it has been overtaken. Well, there were effigies burnt. Of oh, yes. I mean, it, it was, it, it was yeah. you know, we, I, I mean, the, it, it's, if you look at the history in a, in a very dispassionate way, there's no doubt about it that Northern Ireland has been incredibly loyal over the years. You know, thousands died during the war. We, and the Republic of Ireland was impartial, you know, neutral. And yet... Time after time, when it comes down to it, the British government will kind of take the Irish government's side. And this always because of a threat of violence. And so now you're getting a lot of young people in Northern Ireland, young loyalists, young people, you know, beginning to catch on to that because it's been pushed by a lot of people in some situation and saying, well, hang on, you know, violence seems to pay. And that mm. is a real, real worry if yes. people think they, they get rewarded for threats. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, but the, with, the, with the troubles we had earlier in the year mm. and, and, and straight away people were saying that this is about Brexit. And actually, it's, it's more than that. It was much more. I mean, that was triggered by the, uh, the funeral arrangements. And, yes. And I mean, there is, a, there is, you know, the, the problem is we have a, we don't have normal politics in Northern Ireland. There has mm. to be a mandatory coalition between Sinn Féin and the DUP. And you are working a government in Northern Ireland, no matter what anyone says, with one party that doesn't want Northern Ireland to be successful. Why yes. would they? They want a united Ireland. So it's not in their interest to make it. So they make difficulties out of everything. Um, and, and I, you know, I think what is so sad is there is a huge Irish diaspora in Great Britain who are very loyal to, obviously, to, you know, probably to Ireland, but actually have been here for many, many years mm. and don't have that sort of hatred of the British, which Sinn Féin tries to install all the time and um, uh, you know there is a, a younger generation now growing up in the Republic of Ireland who have never understood what happened during the worst of the troubles and the terrible things that went on. Are you optimistic though or do you think that there is the possibility of a, a return to violence? Um, I, I, all of us are, are, are urging that not to happen mm. and that we, we have to maintain the moral high ground but the protocol will have to go one way or the other and mm. I'm hopeful that um, everyone will, will see sense and that people in this country, you know, in Great Britain who were leavers will understand that it's, this is much, much more than about Northern Ireland. This is about actually the EU wanting to punish us still mm. for leaving their little club. Baroness Harry, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. This has been Free Speech Nation, the podcast for GB News with me, Andrew Doyle and Baroness Kate Hoey. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do like and subscribe and join us again next week where we'll have another really exciting guest. See you then.